Well, good morning. good morning. My name is Rick, and if we're meeting for the first time, it's good to see you. There are so many new faces here. Uh, welcome to Evergreen, and some dear but not old faces that I see of friends that I have here, so it's good to see you as well. Time has, has done you well. Uh, Jared called me a few weeks ago to talk about this topic that we're covering this morning on fantasy sex, and it's uh, a topic that's not discussed very often, contrary to what Brad has alluded to earlier. Uh, <laughs> But it is something, and I think this is the best place to talk about this topic, about what the Bible has to say to encourage us as we deal with life and our culture and the challenges that we face. I think there'll be some things we can learn together. Well, let's define our terms this morning. Pornography is defined as the portrayal of erotic behavior designed to cause excitement. It is words acts or representations that are calculated, excuse me, to stimulate sex feelings independent of the presence of another loved or chosen human being. It's very selfish. It's self-focused, narcissistic, focuses on my needs to be pleasured. And porneia, the biblical word that used there is actually about fornication. It says to prostitute one's body to the lust of another to worship idols. And what is an idol? Something that we choose or look to to satisfy the place that only God has in our life. And it never satisfied. It never lasts. It's a fantasy. It's not real. Talk about fantasy sex and pornography, and there are issues beyond this that, that it, it, it factors into. Here are some statistics I think will help you in perspective. Internet pornography usage is a $20 billion annual business globally, with $10 billion spent in the U.S. alone. Americans consume or purchase half the world's consumption of pornography. 20,000 users are using every second. 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites. And over a third of all internet downloads are related to pornography. It's pretty pervasive. Pornhub, the world's most popular site, said they, in 2017 there was 28.5 billion visits to their website alone. That's seven times the population or four times the population of our, our globe. 50,000 searches per minute. The Barna Group in 2016, in surveying men who view pornography at least one per, once per month, 79% of 18 to 30-year-olds. 67% of 21 to 49-year-olds, and 49% of 50 to 68-year-olds. It's pretty high. And it's not just for men, women as well. Percentage of women who say they view pornography at least once per month, 76% of 18 to 30-year-olds, 16% of 21 to 49-year-olds, and 4% of 50 to 68-year-olds. This is not just a male issue. It's a female issue as well. And I think that's, that's not an idea that we've had before, that it, it's just a guy problem. It, images are now affecting all of us. Among youth, 13 to 17, 71% of teens have done something to hide what they do online from their parents, including clearing browsing history, deleting inappropriate videos, lying directly or indirectly about their behavior, using a phone instead of a computer, Blocking parents' social media privacy settings, disabling controls, or using multiple accounts. And now with the apps that there are today, there are apps 
that access pornography, and there's apps to cover those apps so you can hide them and delete information quickly, all in the name of privacy. Teens and young adults aged 13 to 24, surprisingly, believe that not recycling, 56%, is worse than viewing pornography. You think that it's recycling and how it affects our earth is, is more of a problem than internet pornography. On college campuses, some researchers, 66.5% of young men and 48.7% of young women said viewing pornography is an acceptable way to express one's sexuality. A friend of mine was shocked because his son came back from high school football and his teammate said, oh, I have a new girlfriend. And he goes, you want to see a picture of her? And she has sexted him a picture of her nude body. And he was horrified because he said, I sit next to her in class. And he was bragging about his girlfriend, how times have changed. of male students and 32% of female students first viewed pornography before their age of 13. So it's getting younger and younger exposure. In the workplace, how does it affect us at work? 70% of porn is accessed from 9 to 5 during work hours. Barner Research says 63% of men and 36% of women have looked at porn at work in the last three months. Affecting productivity, the average viewing is 13 minutes per day per employee, which if you multiply it out, it's 54 hours per year per employee and lost productivity. There's a financial cost. People get distracted. Don't just take it, keep it home. They can't stop. There's an insatiable desire, and it consumes them wherever they go. Lastly, over 50% of men and 30% of women struggle with pornography of those that attend church. This is not something foreign to what happens here on a Sunday morning across this, our group. It's pervasive across our culture. Fantasy sex and, and the need and the desire, the addiction that it forces into other areas. Pornography is not as much about sex as it is about coping with pain and stress. There's addictions to alcohol and drugs, shopping, whatever it is, to fill the, the void and the pain in our lives that we default to sometimes automatically do the things we've encountered. And contrary to popular belief, you can't try harder. It's like a noose. You put a noose on, the more you struggle, the tighter it gets. In fact, you have to relax and think about it in order to break free. Responding to triggers, you've got flight, fright, and freezing, or ways that we deal with stress. In the book, The Power of Habit, it outlines very simply, there's more complex of looking at it, the, the habit loop. You have triggers, things that affect us as cues, and there's a response or routine and how we respond to, to triggers, and there's a reward. And uh, Jared's mentioned that a few times. You know, I remember as a kid, I would watch Wide World of Sports, anyone, back in the day? And I get nervous, and I would get nervous, and the first thing i do is put my fingers in my mouth and i bite my nails. The trigger was the stress, excitement, the response was my nails, and then I would, that would soothe me and calm me down. We all have various different ways that we are triggered, and we respond and reward. And sometimes it gets pretty dark, depending on the pain we experience in our life. The limbic system, our brain remembers things, and it, it creates patterns that we default to without even thinking, I guess, our best intentions and willpower. 
So the big idea this morning is this. Freedom from porn addiction or fantasy sex is possible when we honestly address the spiritual, emotional, physical, and relational needs in our lives. The story of a family of eight brothers. The youngest one is always a dreamer, the one who gets picked on. A guy who's a hardworking, musician, strong. This morning we're going to look at the story of the life of David in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And I think the things that he experienced are, could be a picture for us of things we can learn from his life. There's five things that, he, that we want to glean from his life. First we'll see a story of, of a guy who's worshiping. He is killing bears and lions. He's protecting sheep. He's learning his guitar or harp, worshiping God. And Samuel the prophet is looking for the next king of Israel after Saul was disgraced. And God leads him to Jesse's house with eight sons and on a point of worship, he says, this is the place. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures about what happens in this scenario. He goes to Jesse's house and God says, from this family comes the next king of Israel. When he arrived, Samuel the prophet saw Eliab, Jesse's son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me now. But the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but he said, not him either. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and not one was chosen. So Samuel asked, is there another son? Do you have any others? And he said, they're still the youngest. The translation, there's a runt in our family. He's out there, the sheep. Samuel says, go get him. We don't sit until he comes. Sent for him. So he sent for him and he had come. He was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rested on him. As we look at the, the pain and rejection by his family, this is the first thing that we're going to talk about is lack, like missing, and whack, being hit. And we get injured by different ways we experience that. There are things that we experience in life, pain, by the absence of a parent who's absent or not receiving affirmation or something that was missing in life, and that's the lack. And here we see David. He is out in the fields working, and his dad doesn't even consider him a son. When they call for him, he goes, oh, we have a runt out there. He's, he's a shepherd boy. Doesn't even call him by name. Doesn't acknowledge him as a son. And you imagine he's worshiping God, saying, God, I need you, but my family, my father is neglectful. Doesn't care about me. There's a big worship time where the prophet comes, but David's not called. Later we see in the battle of Goliath in the Philistines, David is asked by his father, could you take this food and supplies to your brother? Go check on your older brothers. So he goes and obeys his father, and he takes the food, and he gets out there, and he hears Goliath taunting the Israelites, and he's like all in God's favor. He's like, what's this guy doing, taunting? Who's, who's going to go against this guy? 
So he arrives at the front of the battle in 1 Samuel 17, 28 to 32. Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, and he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave the few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David responds, now what have I done? Can I even speak? He then turned away to look at someone else. So he had the lack of his father's affirmation because her son, and then his brothers brutally talk him down. They hate him. They're annoyed by him. And he was obeying his father. Imagine the rejection of your own family that's supposed to honor God. And dad is absent and doesn't consider him alive. His brothers hate his guts. And he did nothing wrong. He was just a good kid, just a, the dreamer of the family. And you can imagine the wound in his heart. Like, what do I need to do? I'm obedient. I serve. I do the job of caring for the sheep like no one else does. What did I do wrong? Yeah. Yet he is anointed king by Samuel. And then he rises up in God's name, and he defeats Goliath, and he receives the praise of a whole nation. But his own family, he can't get anyone to say anything. The wound of trying to fix that, that broken place in his heart. Later, he becomes king after serving Saul and being a, a musician there. And being king means you're an absolute authority. There's nothing you are denied. Consider the drugs of temptation that faced him when he became king. It said Saul defeated a thousand, but David tens of thousands. And that pretty, feels pretty good. I'm ten times as good as this guy. And the praise of his achievements and his prowess begin to rise in his heart. And we don't see him talking about how much he worships God or writes songs about God. He's, his heart has been taken over some of the things. What are some of those things I can imagine? Sexual temptation. Every form of lust, power, and greed. He had wealth and possessions, alcohol, anger, rage, resentment, revenge, lying, and deceit, self-preservation. When you're the king, you got to protect yourself. The difference between David and you and I is that he had no one who could say no to him. He was the king. Above him was God. And he put himself in a position, began to take on the, the power, the prestige, that he was God's man. He was anointed. But it can destroy him on the inside when you begin to think, that's who I am. I can do whatever I want. What do we learn from this? You see people that can love God deeply and still struggle with addiction. It's not all in or all out. You see a man of God who's worshipped God at one time, and he is struggling with all kinds of issues inside of him, and he doesn't know how to respond. How to begin? Compromise. Wrong place at the wrong time. So the first thing was the rejection of his family. left him with a tremendous wound that he couldn't satisfy with all his accomplishment and wealth. So how does he respond? Secondly, we see in David's life that he acts out in his addiction. In 2 Samuel 11, it says, In spring, at the time when kings go out to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole army. And they destroyed the Ammonites, but David remained in Jerusalem. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Compromise. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of his military leaders. At that moment, he had a decision to make. And he made the wrong one. Then David sent messengers to get her. I want her now. She came to him. He slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word of David saying, I'm pregnant. What happens next? You see a man who had a wife, Michael. And he said, oh, I'm king. I need four more. So he brought four more wives. And he had concubines, people who were servants, were also his sexual servants if he needed. God had spoken to Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. Abraham, one wife, leader of a nation. Noah, David says, doesn't apply to me. God's still with me. I love God. He put me as king. I can do what I want. It wasn't God's plan, and it brought him down. He had five wives, concubines. Get me her. I want her. And he crossed the line that brought on shame in a way. Now he, his addiction was causing him to act irrationally. And the story goes on that he brought Bathsheba's husband home, Uriah, and said, maybe I can get him to sleep with his wife, and we can kind of call us a deal. But Uriah is a good leader. He said, I can't sleep with my wife or my men are on the battlefront. I will step here. It would be dishonoring for me before you and God and my men to do this. So now the addiction spirals out. I've got to cover my tracks, David says. So he sends a letter to the front line that said, when Uriah goes out there, you pull back from him and let him be killed. And we'll say it was an account of war. It was murder to cover his tracks. And you see this man who is wise, loved God, is now circling down this destructive path of addiction and it has no end. He thinks he's covered his tracks. Thirdly, after the addiction, number three, David's secret is exposed and he confesses and repents. In a very poignant part of the story in 2 Samuel 12, God says, I gotta do something. He sends Nathan the prophet to David, and he came to him and told him a story of a man who had everything he wanted and multiple animals and possessions, and there was a man who had only one. And this man who had it all took the one animal from this person. And David responds to the story. He goes, that's terrible. Judgment should come on him. Nathan says, that man is you. You took Bathsheba from Uriah, and you murdered her husband. David comes to the bottom. And he responds, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I'm done. God sees me. I have sinned. I'm not hiding anymore. I can't pretend it was something. I sinned. Because truth and grace came to him. He's confronted with the truth of his secret. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. When he should have been deserving a death for the murder of this man's son. He acknowledges his sin and turns to God asking for mercy. And Psalm 51 is a well-known passage. Scholars believe this was written after he was confronted. And he writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. How often is this? So God created me a new heart, a pure heart, and create a steadfast spirit in me. I don't have one right now. Don't cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. That would be the worst if you were to send me off and take your spirit from me. He's broken. David knew worship had to be heartfelt and sincere in worship of God. He felt guilt. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. God brings his guilt to say, repent and move forward. Shame is our response to the, the light. We say, I'm going to hide like Adam and Eve and run away. I can't deal with this. I'm in control. I'm the boss. This is too painful to deal with. And when Adam and Eve run away because of shame, God says, where are you? He didn't say, what did you do, you idiots? He says, where are you? I'm looking for you. I want relationship. Don't hide. Respond to guilt by the song we said, there's no shadow he won't light up. And that, you're in the shadow, the light comes, you run to the light. You don't turn and run away. And shame and hide and say, God, not me. The song said, that light, what lie will he not break down? Coming after you. David experiences God's coming after him. He says, I recognize I've blown it against you. I've made a mistake, but I'm no longer a mistake because I throw myself at your mercy and your loving kindness to blot out my transgressions. But I have to deal with reality. There's consequences of his sin. Fourth is the consequences of his actions, addictions, and absence as a father affected his family. It's a pretty brutal story if you know 2 Samuel. Scholars say that he may have had 30 children, half, like a blended family in his palace living there. I mean, you know the, the reality TV shows that you see of families, right? It's pretty messed up. You can imagine 30 people in a palace with your father as a king, half stepfather, absent father, addicted father. What happens to his sons and daughters? In verse chapter 12, we see Amnon, one of his sons. You see Absalom and Tamar, they're fully related. Amnon has a desire for his half sister. He creates a ruse to have her come and serve him, and then he rapes her. Brings disgrace. David is upset, but does nothing about it. Doesn't correct his son. His son's wild. Does his own thing. But Absalom says, I'm going to take care of this if my dad doesn't. Two years later, he sets up a trap, and he has his brother killed for the shame it brought upon him as a sister that she was violated. Absalom's out of control, too. Later on the road, we see that he tries to set up a coup to overtake his father, who he despises. And he's killed. And David is weeping because he's lost, losing his kids. When he was absent, he's trying to fulfill the void in his life from his father, who was not there, and his brothers. And you see the transgressions passed on down the line. David hits rock bottom, and he admits addiction to God in Psalm 38. He's done chasing after addiction, sex, power, money. He realizes those don't satisfy, they're just fantasies. 
to try to fill a hole that only God can, and he admits his regrets. He's sobered up by reality, and he says this, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. He goes, I've blown it. Those are stupid decisions. I shouldn't have done them. I am bowed down and brought very low. He hits rock bottom. And he's talking to God the whole time. Every time he comes before God, he receives mercy. Lastly, number five, David experiences God's redemption and restoration. Second Samuel, he says, The Lord is my rock and fortress, my deliverer, and whom I take refuge. He is my stronghold and savior from violent men who chase me. He says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. What's he talking about? What do you mean being clean? Once he confessed, he was forgiven, and he saw himself the way God saw him as forgiven. You need to see yourself the way God sees you. When you confess your sins, you are clean. The Bible says if you confess your sin, he is faithful. And just to forgive you of your sin and now cleanse it as if you had never done it before. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to be on good behavior for four days to make it stick as we sometimes try to do. He says, you're clean. And David now believes, I'm, I'm clean. Friends could have blamed him to know you were murdered. No, I confessed that that was who I was, but God sees me as forgiven and I've asked for forgiveness and I'm right with God. I called the Lord he says, for I've kept the ways of the Lord and I'm not guilty of turning from God anymore. All his laws are before me and I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and I've kept myself from sin. He was a sinner in addiction. Now he says, I've kept myself. I've moved away from those addictions. What's interesting is that each time he confesses, God forgives. That's for you too. Every time you confess, you are forgiven and made clean. Amen. You want to try harder? You want to read your Bible more? You confess, you are forgiven. Why? Because he loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. He loves you. Every time you repent and ask forgiveness and run towards the light, when there's a lie or a shadow you're hiding, you're forgiven and welcomed. As a result of receiving that kind of love, David gets back on mission of freedom and purity before God and dedicates himself to finishing his task of rebuilding a temple. But because what he's done, God says, you can't do it, but your son Solomon would. And Solomon is an example of a restored son that he had, that he built a relationship with, that he knew and spent time with. He taught him how to rule, and he was the one that God chose to build a temple. Yeah. David, your hands are too dirty. Thanks for trying. But I'm passing on to you, your, your son who walks in your footsteps. The lesson, no matter what you've done, Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Amen. Nothing. No actions, no words, no addictions, no past, present, or future will separate you. So the thing is, what do we believe? Our faith is based on what we believe, not on how we feel. Amen. I'll say it again. Our faith is based on what we believe, of what God says about it, not how we feel. Because our feelings will deceive us. We have a good day, we feel like God, God is good to me and I'm good. When there's secrets or other days when we fall, like, I'm not worthy to be. God says, I didn't ask your opinion. I bought you with a big price.
I was 10 years old when I was playing with some neighbors. Horn took him to his apartment, and this bully reached under his dad's bed and pulled out a centerfold. I remember the picture like it was yesterday. I was slimed by this photographic picture that I can't shake from my mind because it burned in my mind. I ran home to tell my parents. They were shocked and banned me from playing with this guy by not knowing how to respond to this shock. Later we talked about sex. I was given a book about the birds and the bees and I could tell my parents were hoping I wouldn't have any questions. <laughs> so I pretend like, of course I know, right? Years later, my mom contracted cancer and the stress of fight, flight, or freeze hit me and I didn't want to know what to do with my mom had radiation or hair was falling out. She was suffering. She was in pain. I did my best as the oldest to care for her and she had a friend who, who came to encourage her and one time I said, Rick, what are you doing to help your mom? You don't seem to be doing a very good job of encouraging her. You're not a really good son. I thought, it's better to be seen but not heard. I'll keep my problems to myself because my mom is really suffering. That became the way that I began to medicate my pain. Secret. It'll hurt anyone. I'll be out of the view. And that was my go-to periodically throughout my high school and college years. So much so that I got to a point where I realized if that's the only thing I'm struggling with, because I love God, I'm probably not so bad. I mean, compared to everyone else, I think that's worse than me, right? Because mm-hmm. oh, I'm the judge. And then I stopped not going to college, I mean, to church for a few weeks. Because I was like, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I'm, I love Jesus, but I, I can't go and lift my hands before God. I know what I did on Friday night. And so I pulled back and I began to isolate until a friend noticed and said, Rick, if you're struggling with sin, that's all the more reason you should be in church. You need to be in God's presence. You need to be with his people. That's all the more reason. Don't try to fix yourself up. Go and throw yourself at the mercy of God. And for those of you who sometimes feel like church is not important or you feel like you need to be here with God's people that are just as broken as you are and in need of God's grace, and he gives it. He gives it as much as you need. And I had good accountability in my life and I uh, was grateful for that. So about two and a half years ago, I stumbled again. After years of managing it really well. And I thought, well, I'm not hurting anyone. And I vowed never to do it again. Anyone know? But the cycle of addiction and the response to pain predisposes my habit to go back again. And I felt horrible. I thought, I'll keep trying harder. It's like a noose. You can't tighten it. A few months later, my wife Elizabeth found out, and it was devastating. My world crashed. Friends were called. Family were called. I was shamed. I thought, if I could just confess the truth about it and deal with it, it'll go away. But addiction can't be stopped in one confession. Otherwise, I would have done it a long time ago. I broke her trust. I was irritable towards my kids and angry in response to cover up my shame. And I began a process of walking it out and unpacking how I dealt with shame and guilt and habit. If you're a bad cook and you receive Christ and he changes your heart, you are still a bad cook. <laughs> right? God does not teach you how to cook. But you are saved. Same way in the sins that we have, some of them 
where we save and we repent, God changes us, but we don't learn to walk out things anew. To be healed in how we think and feel and revisit the things that we use to medicate, the idols that have replaced God. And after a season of that, of learning to rebuild trust with my wife and my kids, I can say it's been over two years since I've relapsed, and I wrote a letter to my kids and explained, I apologize and repent for the ways that I've angry towards you in the past and how I kept secrets from mom and you. And I remember the joy that I felt when I felt God's love and forgiveness, when I truly repented to God and said, God, I give up. No more secrets, no more hiding. I've sinned against you and others. And I felt this sense of the truth of God's love for me that was beyond understanding. But secondly was the love and the forgiveness I felt for my wife and my kids. My wife said, Rick, I've learned from God that people are worth forgiving because God forgives. We might have to build trust. It doesn't come quickly. And I have been loved much, forgiven much, and now I love God much. I walk with a limp as one who struggled with addiction and can at any moment. And to even tell the story would be embarrassing for me, but I realize I'm part of God's story. I'm not adding him to my life. I want to walk with him. And now I believe I'm a better husband, a father, a pastor, and friend because a secret came out, and that was God's mercy to me. That was a gift. The Bible said it's, it's kindness leads us to repentance. It's not a, a protecting of myself that, God, you're mean to me. He goes, oh, no, it's the best thing that could happen to you. Pull out this wound and this cancer from your soul. Let's get on to business because there's lives to be changed. Yeah. So spiritually confession, if that's where you're at today, maybe you were affected like my wife was or someone in your family you've seen been in addiction or infidelity, and you feel that as well. That is real. Maybe you slipped into addiction and you can't get out. Today's your day to confess. But beyond that, you need emotional help. You need to talk to Dean in a moment and get a support group. The Bible says, confess your sins one to another so you may be healed. You don't just say, God, I'm good. I don't need to include anyone else. We're wounded in, in community, so we have to be healed in community. That's with others. We include others into our story and say, I need help. Otherwise, we go back to ourselves in pride. Third, there are physical things we can do. I speak to the young people, but also, I've learned, nothing really good, as my youth pastor said, happens after 11 o'clock at night. There's nothing productive you can do after 11. Those of you in high school, remember what you did after band in football games? Nothing productive. In practice, you want to tell your stories to your kids about what you did. So go to bed early. Remove temptation. As a counselor reminded me this week, the four areas that we struggle with to, to irrational behavior and addiction is when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we feel alone or tired. So how do you avoid that? Eat. You're angry, find the source of that and deal with it so it doesn't become into rage and revenge. You're lonely, reach out to people in your small group. Get connected in community so you don't think your own ideas are wonderful. And if you're tired, go to sleep and wake up early. In our house for our kids, we tell them, bring your devices downstairs. We're going to charge them here in the kitchen. 
There's no conversation that you need to have about what you're going to wear to school tomorrow with your girlfriend <laughs> after 11. Putting filters on your devices and sending those reports to others so people can keep tabs on you are helpful. There's other things on here as well. The emotional side, understanding addiction, which this Conquer Series group that Dean's going to share about in a moment, spiritually confess to God. There's a guy in our church, there's a businessman who came to me and said, Rick, I need some advice from the business. And I was like, well... I've been in business and banking, I can understand. He came to me and I would offer advice and, and he didn't listen. So I'm like, I'm done. He just wanted my time. I realized I'm a pastor and a Christian. So he came to me and I said, hey, from now on, we're gonna do soap journaling. Let's read the Bible for five, 10 minutes and see what God says and then we'll talk about the rest of the stuff. And after, after about two months, he said, Rick, you deceived me. I'm like, What? Because you got me to journal so I would hear from God. You know what I learned? He would come to me for advice and I would give it to him. And he wouldn't listen. He just wanted my time. I got him, encouraged him with him, to walk with him, to read the Bible like this 40-day challenge. And God started speaking to him, convicting him, helping him. You know what I learned? Because he listens to Jesus and obeys, he will listen to me. But someone who's not walking with Jesus or listening to the word and having transfer, they won't listen to anybody else. It's all about them. And that just cut down my counseling a lot. I asked people, are you reading your Bible? Okay, start that and then come back to me. But it makes sense, right? If you're not letting the Holy Spirit speak to you through the Bible and you're changed and you respond, you won't listen to anyone else. But if you let God begin to speak to your heart and teach you, you'll be open to others speaking to your life because you humble yourself. And say, I need this person. So this morning, you're humbled. I hope God's speaking to your heart and saying, I want to convince you of my love for you. Believe it. Act like you're loved. And if I bring something up, confess it and move forward. And if it's an addictive area, find someone to confess to and get free. Evergreen's got a great way to do that for you. So I'm going to invite Barb and Dean to come up and share about Conquer. Rick, thank you so much. Uh, I love you a lot. <laughs> what can I say? But thank you for sharing. So, guys, we're going to be doing a Conquer series here the first week in April. Uh, it'll be April 3rd from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And we're going to meet here in the Vortex Room and uh, basically go through a 10-week study and uh, get started on uh, understanding with uh, biblical application and practical tools how to walk in freedom. Um, so this is a place for uh, those of you that maybe you have a brother, you want to learn how to uh, come alongside and help your brother or your group leader, great, great time to come. But I also just want to stand here and say, as one who has my own story of struggle, that um, if you're looking for freedom, today is the day that was arranged for you. Today is the day, as Rick said, that God is speaking volumes. There's no accident we're here. He's saying, I love you. You are my son, and or you are my daughter, and I love you dearly. So, um, yeah, so look forward. Hope to see you there, and uh, now I'm going to let my wife share her heart. Um, I just want to address the ladies. If you are a person who is suffer suffering or who has suffered, who may be in the process of recovery, 
There are support groups for you here. We don't like to talk about this. It's kind of nasty, but it's hard to do it alone. For the women or the moms, you might have a father, a son, a spouse who might be in recovery, or you are in the process of working through a journey with whoever it is, there are support groups. Um, I left my email. Please feel free to email me. Um, I can direct you to places. There's a, a great service through Pure Desire Ministries, uh, which is started by Dr. Ted and Diane Roberts, who were head pastors at East Hill. Amazing things have come out of this ministry. And I just encourage you, God doesn't want our women folks living in shame either. He Amen. wants freedom for all of his children. Amen. On the notes of some questions, be honest with yourself and confess your sin. You can't find freedom by yourself, so share with a trusted friend, pastor, small group leader. Join a Conquer Series group or women's support group so you can not walk alone. Introduce new habits. Identify your triggers when you're hungry and tired and alone, angry, that you go to bed. Seek help. Jesus is the only one that satisfies, and he loves you dearly. He paid full price for you and for me. So let him love you. Let his thoughts fill your hearts in the places that we try to find purpose or satisfaction in coping with things. And if we were all to do that, imagine the, the impact it would be on our town and our families as we begin to walk this out. Yeah. We may want to run out. But Psalm 23 says, when I walk through the valleys, we get to know God better in the valleys, the hardships. So let him love you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth and grace. Thank you that you're not a fantasy. You are real. You're a God who loves, who created us in your image to be like you. And you say, be part of my story. So, Father, I pray for courage for people that need to confess their sins. The, the precious, the, today's the day they're saying, I, I don't know. To yes, Jesus says, come to me, confess. Find a brother or sister. Begin to put habits in place to unpack why you do those things. But the goal is freedom. So, Father, thank you that you will shine the light in the shadow. That's not to shame us, but to bring us out into the light more. So, Father, I pray for this congregation that you would have people go in freedom today, knowing they are loved by God to be set free. In Jesus' name.